We need, uh, Holy Spirit, you to enlighten our eyes as we, as we hear what you have for us in your word. Your grace must be sufficient for our weakness, uh, and you promise that it is. And so we ask, Father God, that you would indeed enlighten our eyes and, and inflame our hearts to receive your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So imagine this with me. You are an ancient Israelite who has just been delivered out of horrible slavery in Egypt uh, by the Lord God. You are under a wicked king whose laws were against you, laws that legalized the killing of your children, and were under harsh labor laws that, that uh, gave you no day off. And if you didn't actually meet what the, the requirements of your job, you would have been beaten. Something then miraculously happens. The, the God of your ancestors, he intervenes on your behalf. He overthrows the wicked king that you are under, and he takes you to be his people. He reminds you of the promises he's given to your ancestors, and, and he says he will bring these promises to fruition for you. All you need to do is submit to his kingship, and these promises will be yours. And so you willingly accept these conditions. But then after a few days go by, you, along with everyone else uh, in the camp, you break one of his laws, worshiping a, a, a man-made, a handmade golden calf. And he gets angry. He tells Moses that he will give you all the blessings you promised, but he will not go with you into this promised land. You'll be able to actually experience all the blessings of God without having him reign over you as king. It seems like you'll actually be completely free. That sounds kind of great, doesn't it? If you've been under a harsh king for a while, you get the blessings of God without having to submit to his laws. You get to be completely free, but he won't be living among you. And so this raises a question. What's better, the Lord God himself or his blessings? In Exodus 33, Moses shows us that the answer is, uh, shows us the answer by saying this, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He's saying, God, you are the chief blessing. It is you uh, who, who we need and who we long for. Every other good thing flows actually from him. And we know that, right? But we also often get this backwards. We often long for these good things uh, in themselves, peace, comfort, prosperity, and happiness. We long for these things rather than actually the Lord God Himself. And so then when we fail to experience these blessings, we look out at those who we think are having these blessings, and we can get envious as we perceive them receiving these good blessings of God, whereas we aren't getting anything, so it seems. And that's where Asaph actually finds himself in this passage. You see, he looks out and he sees the wicked prospering. They appear to be enjoying all of God's blessings, all of the things that he's promised to give to his people, and he grows envious. That is until he meets with God in worship. And then his envy is dispelled. And so the big idea of our passage this morning is that worship of the Lord is the antidote for an envious heart. Worship is the antidote for an envious heart. And so we'll actually explore this by looking through the three major movements of this psalm. We have the crisis that Asaph's experiencing, the turning point, and the resolution. So first, the crisis. 
verses 1 through 14. So Asaph begins this psalm with a confessional statement. He says, truly God is good to Israel. That is His people. Truly, uh, He's good to those who are pure in heart. A characteristic that marks His people. But then, what we see is He quickly admits that He's struggling to believe this true statement. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly... Or my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. That's because He's looking out. He's looking around. And he's seeing the wicked thrive. And this is causing envy to rise up in His heart. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it's not that the wicked were, were just thriving, but actually he uses a particular word to, experience, uh, to talk about their prosperity, or what's translated here as prosperity. It's shalom. It's this complete well-being and, and peace that they are experiencing, both economic well-being, physical well-being, and just complete peace. And this is confusing to him because God is, is the one who, God's people are the ones who are supposed to be experiencing this complete peace. These are the, this is one of the promises that God gives his people. And even in the previous psalm, verses 3 and verse 7 are talking about, or, or record the psalmist praying that his people would experience the shalom that he has promised to give, this complete peace and well being. It's even affirmed in Psalm 1 that those who are, who are flourishing, the righteous are the ones who flourish uh, like a tree planted by streams of water. It is those who are God's people. They produce fruit in, in season and out of season. And yet, uh, the, and while there, the wicked are described as having withering or being withered leaves swept away by the wind. This isn't actually happening. This isn't the reality of what the psalmist is seeing. So he's confused. He's seeing the opposite take place. And he actually goes on to describe in verses 4-12 to 12 what this, uh, what this uh, experience, what this prosperity is. He says they, they have no pangs until death. They're, they're not experiencing any pain. They're healthy and they're strong. No trouble is coming into their lives. And this causes them to be proud. They wear their pride actually for all to see. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as with a garment. Their violence is both well known in their actions and in their words. In verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They're not trying to hide anything. They're not trying to hide their wickedness because they're experiencing all these blessings, it seems. And why should they try to hide? It doesn't seem as if God's judgment is, is coming upon them. It doesn't seem that they're experiencing any of the consequences of living a wicked life. And so they boast even more against God. That's what we see in verse 9. Their mouths are set against the heavens and their tongue struts throughout the earth. They, they deny that the Lord has any knowledge of, of their doing. They're almost saying, where is He? Is God even there? And since there doesn't appear to actually be any judgment falling upon them, God's people are actually turning to the wicked and aligning themselves with them. So we see in verse, in verse 10, therefore His people, they turn back to them and find no fault in them. This is a complete reversal of the promises that God has given to His people. And it's perplexing. And Asaph is struggling. He's wrestling with this. And it leads him actually to make a rash conclusion. In verse 12, he says this. Or in verse uh, yeah, 12, he says, Behold, the wicked are always at ease. They increase in riches. 
Um, the shalom of God, that peace, that complete well-being is theirs. It's not mine. And envy rises up in him. And, and it actually causes him to wrestle with his obedience to God. He says, it's all in vain, actually. It's all in vain to, to, uh, to be in obedience to God. Because all I'm experiencing, all I'm continuing to find, is that I'm stricken and rebuked every morning. Trouble and hardship continue to come into my life as I continue to strive to walk in, in accordance with God and His ways. I thought blessings were supposed to come to me. I thought, I thought I was supposed to have peace. And yet I just find trouble continuing uh, to heap on me. And one commentator actually suggests that as the psalmist's description of what his experience is, is actually the goodness of God's discipline. Because God disciplines those who He loves. And, and yet his gaze, the, the Asaph's gaze is so fixed on these apparent blessings that he can't even see the goodness of God to him in the midst of this. It leaves him feeling envious. It leads him to criticize God and say, you're not treating me as I think you should. What's happening? Do you relate to that? Do you relate to that brutal honesty that, that um, Asaph is, is speaking here? Why do I even try to be holy? What do I get out of it? Again, I just find myself experiencing hardships. I see my own weakness, and it, and it just seems to get, um, become more and uh, greater and greater. And I just get, keep hit, getting hit with one trouble after another. Why can't I just have a break like those who are at ease? Like the, why, don't, why do I always have to fight my sin? And I get to watch those people over there get to just revel in it, and they don't seem to have any trouble. They're living it up. They're having a great time with life. And it just, and I'm, I'm feeling crushed over here. So have you ever felt that way? Do you currently? Maybe you're currently even feeling that way. And if you are, I want you to be encouraged. Because look, uh, obviously this is something that is, real, is, is a part of the Christian experience. Enough for God to put in His Word to us. To say that it is something that we will experience and we will wrestle with. And, and if we see it here in His Word, we can know that we don't have to hide wrestling with this envy. We don't have to hide those, those feelings. But that doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with it. So, and, and so that, that leads us to the question of how do we wrestle with envy? How do we, we uh, not allow envy in this spiritual battle to pin us down and win? Well, Asaph shows us how in the turning point in the next section. In verse 15, we read that he begins reflecting on his thoughts, the, those different thoughts that are swirling around in his mind. Look at this. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's taking some time to, to accurately assess what's going on within him. What are his emotions saying? What are those things he's feeling? And he realizes that if he were to agree with his circumstance-fueled thoughts, he'd actually be betraying God's people. He would be betraying those who are around him, and especially as a, as a leader in the, in the, uh, the uh, ministry, the, uh, as a worship leader, what he would be doing is leading these people astray. But he also would be betraying 
the generations of his people. He would be betraying his ancestor Abraham, who believed God's promise of being made into a great nation when he had yet had a child. He'd be betraying Joseph, who believed that, uh, that God would bring up his people out of Egypt and bring them into a, the promised land. He'd be betraying Moses, who trusted that the Lord would fight for his people when they were caught in between the encroaching Egyptian army and the Red Sea with nowhere to go. He'd be betraying King David, who believed God's promise that a great king would come on his, from his line and sit on this throne forever. And then he would even be betraying his future, uh, his future Savior, Jesus who lived in perfect obedience as a suffering servant, perfect obedience to God to win salvation for Him and for us. So by refusing to align himself with his thoughts in verses 13 and 14, Asaph is actually resolving to live by faith. He's saying that these circumstances that I'm looking at and experiencing, those aren't going to inform what is true. I'm going to choose to trust in God's, the promises of God's blessings that come with obedience. I'm going to choose to trust what God has to say. But yet this doesn't mean that his confusion goes away. He, he, he's still confused as to why the wicked are experiencing God's shalom. Look at verse 16. He says this, but th- when I thought on how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. How is it that he can, he's saying, can I understand why God's people are suffering and yet the wicked seem to be prospering? It's, I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. But then we have verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That is, until he meets with God in the sanctuary, until he goes to worship, that is when he begins to understand. That is when he begins to see clearly. You see, the, the sanctuary, the holy place, is where God's presence dwelt with his people. And so, whenever they would enter into the sanctuary, the, the Israelites would be engaged in worship of the Lord God. And so the psalmist, uh, uh, what Asaph is saying here is that it wasn't until uh, he went into worship that he was able to see. Worship became the antidote to his envy. But why? Why is that the case? Well, how, how, is that, how is that so? Well, in worship, what is going on is we're being reoriented to the truth as we have an encounter with the Lord God, as He meets with us. He is truth, and as we encounter Him, He brings His truth to light and His truth to bear on our lives. And there's two categories for worship, right? There's corporate worship, which is what we are engaged now, where God in a special way meets with His gathered people, pours out His blessings upon us. And then there's also personal or private worship, which is the daily time we spend in the Word and in prayer. But in both, the Lord meets with us in a special way. Through His Word. And we are met with the truth about His greatness, His almighty power, His holiness, His goodness, and His faithfulness. And and we, we hear again and we read of His mighty works for our sake. And then even when we're gathered together in corporate worship, we actually get to look around and we get to see the, His redeemed people coming together and praising Him for the good works He's done even in their lives. And we get to thank Him. But we actually cannot even worship without the Holy Spirit enabling us to to understand the Bible and inflaming our hearts, right? And so, 
since worship is an encounter between us and God, which is centered on the Bible and leads us into joyful praise, it's actually the primary way that we get to experience God's blessings poured out on His people. And that's what's going on with Asaph as he comes into worship. He's meeting with the Almighty God who's bringing His truth to bear on His life. He's, he's enlightening His eyes. He's reorienting Him to the truth of what is really going on with the wicked and what's really actually going on with Asaph. First of the wicked, we read this. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. See, what, what uh, Asaph is saying here is what's really going on behind the prosperity of the wicked is that the Lord is using this shalom, this peace, this complete well-being is actually a judgment against them. You see, all this health and wealth is really aiding in keeping them blind to their spiritual condition. It's a judgment upon them. And so their end of destruction comes upon them swiftly, comes upon them quickly. And he, and he has Asaph look forward into the future. And he says, in a moment they will be destroyed. In the future, it's just like a dream that seems so real as they, when they are in it. But as they, they, they wake up, they realize that their, their prosperity was all a lie. They missed it. They really didn't have any peace because the Lord's judgment has fallen upon them. And then he sees the truth about himself as he's encountering the Lord. He recognizes that uh, as he recognizes the truth of their end and the truth of his end, he, he's heartbroken over his envy of the wicked. And he actually confesses his sin of envy to the Lord. That's what we see here. He says that he was acting like an animal. He was driven only by attaining that which would satisfy his immediate desires. He brings his confession to the Lord. He, and he even says that he was questioning God's justice. He was not being wise, but he was thinking foolishly. And yet, look at verse 24, uh, 23. Look at what the, Lord's, uh, the Lord says, or what is true about him, what he confesses. He says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. He's acting like an animal before the Lord. He, he, is, he is questioning his, his, his uh, justice. He's criticizing him because he's envying the wicked. And yet, the Lord does not cast him aside. He actually remains right by his side. And he actually grasps hold of him. He holds him fast and pulls him back from the edge of unbelief. Which is what is made and implied by that statement of holding my right hand. The Lord is, is keeping Asaph back. He's, he is at the depths over uh, right a few verses ago where he's talking about almost being willing to cast off the Lord in unbelief because he's seeing these blessings fall upon the wicked. And yet, the Lord is still near to him and pulls him back. Not only that, not only does he see that, but he recognizes that the Lord guides him with his counsel rather than allowing him to walk in the counsel of the wicked, rather, rather than uh, allowing him to keep taking that step to turn and align himself with the wicked to say, it's not even worth following the Lord. The Lord guides him with his counsel. And, and 
according to Psalm 1, again, the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked is, is already walking down that path of destruction. So here we see the Lord's goodness, his guiding of Asaph. And actually, uh, uh, continuing, if we read further on in, the verse, in the Psalm 1 again, we see that that will actually guarantee blessings to fall on Asaph. That will guarantee his flourishing. And then the truth about, again, where Asaph is doesn't even end there. It doesn't even end with God guiding him by his counsel, but he, the promise that he will receive him into glory, that the Lord will take him and bring him to dwell in his presence forevermore. But he will get to experience the, the fullness of unending joy and peace and happiness. For Psalm 1611 says that in your presence there is the fullness of joy. There will be no more pain or trouble or sorrow because the fullness of joy will be there and sin and all its devastating effects will be fully eradicated. This is what um, Asaph is confronted with as he comes to worship the Lord. And so we see it, and then we see a resolution in verse 25. Asaph, Asaph's crisis is, is resolved because he cannot help but be in awe as he has met with that truth. And, and the truth about not only what is his, but who is his, who he has a claim on. Here he sees that there's no better blessing than having God himself. So he asks this rhetorical question who am, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth I desire besides you. In all creation, there's nothing des uh, more desirable to him than the Lord. And so instead of envying the wicked for their apparent blessings, his worship-inspired heart craves nothing else than to know the Lord has God in a richer and fuller way. And so he says, uh, and actually what we see is a, a juxtaposition here as he says uh, that uh, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's this juxtaposition of these, of these verses because he, when he's saying my heart and flesh may fail, he's saying his strength has been spent in wrestling. He was almost again at the brink of turning away. And yet it was only the Lord pouring out his strength into Asaph's heart that kept him faithful. The Lord reaching out, grabbing him and pulling him back. Think about how wonderful that is. Asaph, he's here in desperate need. He's ready almost to cast off the Lord. And yet, the Lord graciously intervenes. Just as a father cannot help but run to the rescue of his little child who is in danger, that the Lord bursts out here towards Asaph, lavishing upon him all the riches of his strength and everything he needed to remain faithful. And so the Puritan William Gurnall actually encourages us to see the goodness of the Lord to us when we begin to when we experience any sort of spiritual comfort. It's the Lord pouring out Himself upon us, coming to our need, giving us our strength, because we don't have the strength to do it in our own. And then the final words of Asaph, he speaks here that God is His portion. He says, "You are mine." And so, what does it mean actually to have God as? mine. Well, it means having the Lord who upholds the whole universe relate to you as a father, a kind and loving father who is committed to using his almighty power to, for your good. This is what we see here, right? He's using to, everything that he has at his disposal for your sake. Verses 23 and 24 show us that, right? It is the Lord who is continually with you, even when you are on your lowest and on the brink of unbelief. It's, it means that the Lord will hold you and keep your feet from slipping into unbelief, which will result in death. 
It means that the Lord will continue to guide you by his counsel, which leads to life. And it means he'll bring you into his glorious presence where there is the fullness of joy. And it's in worship where we are reoriented to this truth. Because there our God, our Heavenly Father, He meets with us and He guides us by His counsel here into His truth. And these realities aren't just uh, specific to Asaph. He says in verse 1 that these are the realities of all who are pure in heart. And how is it though? How is it that we can become pure in heart? Well, it's not by regularly attending worship. It's not by actually doing all the right things that are needed. It's not even by, um, by keeping all the rules, right? It's a free gift given to us by Jesus Christ. Jesus has won for us this purity of heart. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed. Our hearts were washed clean, made pure. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every step that Jesus Christ took on earth in perfect obedience to His Father, was to win this purity for you. Every time you perfectly love His neighbor, it was done for you. And then finally, on the cross, as He lifted up His perfect life, He guaranteed that this purity was to be given to you. And so now, because of Christ, every one of us who has faith in Christ gets to take these words upon our lips. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forever. So let us continue to draw near the Lord in worship. It's the antidote for an envious heart. It reorients us to this truth that in Christ, the Lord God is my strength and my portion. He is mine forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You just astounded. Astounded that we get to call You Father. Astounded that we get to call You mine and know that You draw near to us in Christ, and that we get to stand before you grateful um, and, and before your throne in the knowledge that you are our portion and our strength. Encourage us in this way as we go about um, our work this week, as we um, maybe fight those different feelings of envy and, and confusion about why we don't see these, these blessings. Remind us, Lord, that we are in your hand. We have you working all things together for our good. And lead us to worship and pour out your blessings upon us that we might be uh, reoriented to the truth and go forward praising your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, please. In our bulletins, it says that we're going to.